every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and a warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday the 19th of December. This is Peter Lewis. This is the original Money Talk. And I'd like to thank you for making it one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. You can find it at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com along with my daily newsletter. And it's also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Xi Jinping praised Hong Kong's chief executive John Lee for upholding national security, reshaping the district council system and steering a post-pandemic economic recovery. President Xi said the central government fully endorses Mr Lee's work, which has consolidated the general trend of turning Hong Kong from chaos to order while putting the city on a path to prosperity. President Xi's praise for Hong Kong comes as the trial of Jimmy Lai, the Hong Kong media mogul and prominent critic of the Chinese Communist Party, started yesterday. He's being tried under a sweeping national security law and could face life in prison if found guilty. He faces two counts of conspiracy to collude with foreign forces to endanger national security and a count of conspiracy to print seditious material under the Beijing-imposed law. UK Foreign Secretary David Cameron said he was gravely concerned about the politically motivated prosecution. Oil prices have surged after oil giant BP said it would pause all oil shipments through the Red Sea after recent attacks on vessels by Houthi rebels. Mounting attacks by the militant group on ships in the Red Sea are disrupting maritime trade as leading global freight firms reroute around the Cape of Good Hope to avoid the Suez Canal. Brent crude oil settled 1.8% higher at $77.95 a barrel. Nippon Steel has agreed to buy U.S. Steel in a deal that values its American rival at 14.9 billion U.S. dollars, including debt, in the Japanese group's biggest ever acquisition. The per share offer of $55 represents a premium of about 40% to U.S. Steel's Friday's close and 142% compared to the stock's closing price before the company announced a strategic review process on August the 11th. Nippon Steel, the world's number four steelmaker, sees the U.S. as a growth market that can help to offset declining demand in Japan. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. US stocks advanced on Monday maintaining momentum from the rally last week, which was spurred by Federal Reserve projections for three interest rate cuts in 2024. The benchmark S&P 500 gained half a percent to 4,741, led by energy groups as oil prices rose. It's risen for seven consecutive weeks. That's the longest string of weekly gains since 2017. And that has taken the broader index to a little more than 1% away from its all-time closing high that was reached in January 2022. The Dow was little changed, gaining under one point to 37,306. The Nasdaq Composite rose for the eighth straight day, adding to its seven-week advance. It ended the session 0.6% higher at 14,900. 
US steel shares surged 24.5% after Japan's Nippon Steel said it would buy the company. The so-called Magnificent Seven stocks rallied strongly for the fourth day in the last five to a new high. Apple was the only Magnificent Seven stock not to rise on the day, falling 0.9% after the company said it would stop selling some of its smartwatches through its own US stores before Christmas after losing a patent infringement case. Ten-year treasuries sold off slightly with the yield on the benchmark bond rising four basis points to 3.9% after falling below 4% last week to a five-month low. The 30-year yield rose five basis points to 4.07% after hitting the lowest level since the 31st of July last week. And the interest rate-sensitive two-year yield was up one basis point at 4.46%. The US dollar index was unchanged Monday at around 102.5%, ahead of US PCE inflation data due later this week. It's down 0.9% year-to-date, putting it on track for its first negative year in three years. The yen was the G10 laggard Monday, ahead of the Bank of Japan rate decision later today. It fell half a percent to 142.89 yen to the dollar. In Shanghai, the yuan dips 0.2% to 7.13 and a third renminbi per dollar. And gold managed small gains Monday after Friday's almost 1% fall. It settled 0.4% higher at $2,026 an ounce. Hong Kong stocks reversed some of last week's 2.8% gains, which took the city's benchmark index to a two-week high. The Hang Seng Index fell 163 points, or 1%, to end the day at 16,629. The tech index declined 1.3%, and on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite fell 0.4% to 2,931. The CSI 300 fell by 0.4% to notch a four-day losing streak and hit fresh four-year lows. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to decline just over 100 points at the open. That's around about 0.6%. Futures markets pointing to the index starting the day at around 16,525. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's the final Tuesday before Christmas, so I think we have a festive panel of guests with us this morning, starting with Stuart Allcroft, as cheerful as ever, Asian fund management industry consultant. Morning to you, Stuart. Festive ho, 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 and good morning and good evening to you. I can see this is going to be a good show this morning. And we have with us Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark, and happy Christmas. Happy, happy holidays to everyone. And happy holidays to Barry Wood, our US <laughs> economics correspondent, who is over in a, a cold and chilly Washington, D.C., I understand. Good morning to you, Barry. Yeah, so is that ho, ho, ho? Maybe. Anyway, it's uh, Christmas is coming. It's uh, a good economy. Things are good. So hello to all. Great. Well, well we, we can try and spoil all that, again, Barry. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Do your best. Yeah, if we start talking politics, we're in trouble. We're here to ruin your day. Well, let's talk politics. Uh, Hong Kong, a lot of focus on Hong Kong at the moment for various reasons. The trial of Jimmy Lai, the Hong Kong media mogul, who's a prominent critic of the Chinese Communist Party, started yesterday. He's being tried under a sweeping national security law, could face life in prison if found guilty. The trial puts an unwelcome international spot light on Hong Kong at a time when the confidence of foreign businesses and investors in the city has been waning a little. 
Mr Lai has already spent a thousand days in prison and his case is being closely scrutinised by Western governments. UK Foreign Secretary David Cameron said he was gravely concerned about what he said was a politically motivated prosecution. And Mr Cameron said in the statement that the security law is a clear breach of the Sino-British Joint Declaration and its continued use shows China has broken its international commitments. China criticised the comments made by Britain and the United States, calling them interference in the rule of law in Hong Kong. And in a statement, the Office of the Commission of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the SAR urged foreign politicians to stop condoning criminals and to stop interfering in Hong Kong and China's international affairs. Um, Stuart, as I said earlier, for various reasons, a lot of focus on Hong Kong um, right now. Is this going to damage at all um, international perceptions of of the city or even damage the ability or the the willingness of foreign companies to come here and invest and set up businesses? Um, uh, To be honest, I don't think it will, but I think it will provide for all the um, naysayers fantastic opportunity for them to continue to run down Hong Kong. Um, Many many of the businesses that might think about coming to Hong Kong will not be interested particularly in the political issues and far more in the um, business and economic issues of Hong Kong. And uh, I think you might might want to talk about those later on because the economic issues of Hong Kong are are getting slightly worse. But I I think the, the whole issue of uh, the Jimmy Lai trial. Um, yes, it, it, it's happening, but I don't, I personally don't think it's going to affect business and business interest very much. However, having said that, um, most people are going to be taking the view that let's see what happens. Um, Jimmy Lai's been in prison for the last, well, three years or more, in effect. Um, and well, there's always the possibility he could be found not guilty. I mean, let's face it. I mean, this is a this is a trial. It's in front of three judges who are supposed to be independent, um, and I, I'll use the word in inverted commas for this purpose. Um, and they will have the opportunity of assessing the facts and deciding whether or not J- Jimmy Lai um, is guilty or not guilty of of the charges that he faces. Now, one of the interesting things, and I'm sorry to talk a bit longer about this, but um, and I, I'm sure Mark will probably want to have a say as well. But one of the interesting things is that most of what Jimmy Lai is being charged with occurred before the national security law was brought into place. And uh, in trying to persuade us in Hong Kong that the national security law was something that would be good for Hong Kong and protect Hong Kong. There were a lot of occasions where the then chief executive and others said that um, only from the point where the national security law had been enacted would any transgressions be um, be of concern and then be prosecuted. But where, but what's happening is that that well, is, that is not what is happening as far as Jimmy Lai is concerned, and it is not what has happened as far as many of the others that have been arrested, because many of those that have been arrested, their transgressions occurred before the NSL was actually enacted in Hong Kong. So, uh, my concern is that um, that this is clearly not 
um, or it is a breach of what might have been believed by the general population of Hong Kong um, uh, 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 earlier on in, in persuading us to accept this law. Now, don't think that the NSL is that draconian. It isn't that draconian, and most countries around the world do have a similar law. Uh, and, and indeed, many people will tell you that the the equivalent law in Singapore is far more draconian than the one in Hong Kong. But um, it's the fact that prior to having that, we didn't have anything similar. Mark, when you talk to your members, is is there a link between the politics? And obviously, this is, um, uh, you know, a case that's seen as very political and and, and sort of business. Do, do, do business members express concerns over things like this? This is, well, it's sort of a combination of piling on in Hong Kong. I know it might not have been coincidental that the FT released its its uh, its its commentary uh, yesterday on on uh, existential Hong Kong's existential crisis. Hmm. You know, and then on top of that, Paul Chan says that you know we have to tighten our belts. Things are not looking looking so good going forward. So all these pile on, but you know it does affect them in the sense not necessarily just this this trial itself. But they have to listen to their, especially U.S. companies, have to listen to their boards and to their their shareholders. And they're affected by this. And some feel fairly direct pressure from members of Congress, for example, which Barry knows a lot more about than than I do at the same time. And so they they dread the calls on, on Monday evenings from the United States, especially talking about what's happened over the weekend. So it does have an impact, and it just adds on to what sort of what Stuart is saying, that it adds on to reluctance to to increase investment in Hong Kong, sometimes not stop investment, but increase it. And it has affected visits. Some executives from from the U.S. and even from Europe are not visiting Hong Kong. I think this is way overstated and and probably probably certainly doesn't need to happen. But anyway, that's been the case. So all this. Yeah. All this news isn't good. Well, Barry, and and just again, to add I think to it's what, yeah. yeah, just to add to what Mark's saying, um, I think we've seen these reports of U.S. executives being warned to use burner phones in Hong Kong because of uh, security of their phone. I mean, this is all complete nonsense, as we all know. But um, it's it's the it's the level of disinformation that is occurring. Um, particularly in the U.S., about Hong Kong. Well, Barry, what is the U.S. perspective on this? Is there, first of all, um, a lot of focus on this trial? More than there's been on any subject concerning Hong Kong for many months, I'm tempted to say for the past year. I think it's put Hong Kong back in the news in a very negative light. And the assumption is that uh, Jimmy Lai would be uh, convicted. And uh, I'm interested, Stuart, as to why you think I guess because those alleged offenses may be before the law was in effect. But uh, look, this follows news about um, the bounties that are being offered for those young people who were protesters who fled the country. And uh, of course, the Agnes uh, Chow case in Canada and having gone to the mainland and then allowed to leave the country. Uh, so it's been very bad. And then there was a piece about Hong Kong universities uh, losing a lot of their academic freedom. So yes, I would say that it's very bad PR 
for Hong Kong as seen in the American media. No doubt about that. Is there a risk that if Jimmy Lai is found guilty, and and I should point out that so far under the national security law in Hong Kong, there's been a 100% conviction rate. So if he is found guilty, is there a risk of the US government and Congress calling for further sanctions on Hong Kong? I would think so, Peter. Uh, Look, the reality is that if you go back to 2019 and the protests, which got huge Uh, press attention in the United States. And then you look at the crackdown and and the exodus of so many people, both in the business community and certainly Chinese uh, activists and students going to, you know, all these countries like Canada, Australia, United States, Britain. Then I think that um, most Americans who follow this don't make any distinction any longer between Hong Kong and the mainland. And uh, so that's a problem. Yes, I think that uh, this could indeed lead to further measures, and they're already in the works about uh, China and Hong Kong. And to, and to Stuart and Mark's point, are, are you seeing signs that Hong Kong, uh, that American businesses um, are pulling back on investment in Hong Kong or not traveling to Hong Kong as a result of things like this? Well, certainly not traveling to Hong Kong. I mean, those who do go, uh, we talked on this program earlier, some weeks or even months ago when uh, uh, Jamie Dimon came, but he was um, very quick to leave. (laughs) So yes, I think that there's certainly a diminution in travel to Hong Kong as to investment and the location of executives for the Asia Pacific operation in Hong Kong. The business community is keeping very low profile. And I think you would know more about that actually in Hong Kong than I do here in the States. Let me ask you about that uh, article uh, that Mark mentioned in in the FT. It was quite a long opinion piece. It came under the headline, China's slowdown is deepening Hong Kong's existential crisis. It was quite a long opinion piece published yesterday. It says Hong Kong's facing a deepening, uh, deepening existential crisis, which is being exacerbated by China's economic slowdown. And it said the SAR's growing reliance on China has turned into a distinctly mixed blessing. It now finds itself hitched to a slowing mainland economy and additionally competition from Chinese capital markets and a political crackdown by Beijing have left Hong Kong facing this existential crisis as a major international financial centre. And of course, we talked on this show before about some of these comments on mainland uh, social media describing um, Hong Kong as a relic of um, a financial centre. It just all seems to be coming at the same time, doesn't it, when we see articles like this? But is there any truth in in what the FT is saying? Are we facing um, uh, an existential crisis as a financial centre? Well, two things of of particular note as far as I'm concerned here. The FT has has for a long while been more than negative about Hong Kong generally and about China generally. Um, It's had its own problems through um, journalists not being allowed visas to go to China, visit China, that sort of thing. But but the other thing I would say, and, and, and you know, our listeners will have to excuse me, it's a, it's a statement of the bleeding obvious. And um, the fact is that we, you know, this has been stuff that we've been knowing about for ages, and it's nothing new about Hong Kong and its relationship with China. So. Frankly, I think that, um, yeah, it's an interesting article, however, and the content of it does 
demonstrate for anybody who wants to know just the extent to which China is part of the um, the economy of Hong Kong, and it won't change. That is the that is the other aspect. China will become more and more a part of the economy, and Hong Kong wants that to happen. So don't think that this is a negative. It is a positive because, although things are not going terribly well in China at the moment economically, that will change. That will turn around in time. And that will be of massive benefit to Hong Kong when it does occur. And of course, Mark, what it what it says is, I suppose, what we know already is that um, Hong Kong is converging with China, and it's certainly not the other way around. It's not going to be China that converges with Hong Kong. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it. And, uh, you know, in terms of financial services companies, leading financial services companies, I talk to these executives, especially the American ones, fairly regularly representing the American institutions, and they don't sound like Hong Kong is moving away from being a financial center. Most of them are are increasing their presence in Hong Kong, if anything, at least at this point. Of course, they're under pressure, as as you rightly said, but at the same time, at least in that, in that sec- sector, it still looks reasonably good. Obviously, they worry if there are restrictions, and a lot of this comes from comes from the U.S. Congress, especially the Special Committee on, on China, as is, is, is very well known. And they get in contact directly with U.S. executives, and they call them out almost every time they do almost yes. anything regarding You're quite China. Right, Mark. So, so that's, a, that's, that's, that's the challenge. Other sectors, it's difficult because they have alternatives, right? Hong Kong, you can argue, is still the major financial center in Asia, uh, whereas, you know, in, in other, other areas, they can move to Singapore, or they can, they can diversify to India, whatever they want to do. Barry, how powerful yeah. is this congressional committee? Is it really putting the frighteners on business executives over there? Yes, I believe it is, Peter. Uh, this is, uh, you know, a special committee. I mean, it was just established for this one purpose. It's an ad hoc committee. It, uh, its lifetime will be determined. Uh, it, it's certainly not, uh, by statute, going to have a long life. But Uh, You've got this unity among Democrats and Republicans on the question of China, particularly on high tech matters. So, yeah, I think it's very influential, as uh, as as Mark just said, Uh, they are sort of in the business of being the police looking at corporations and their activities in Hong Kong and China. So uh, it's, it's tough. And I think this makes further need for businesses to be exceedingly careful. You know, look, life is good in Hong Kong. Executives operating in the mainland prefer to live in Hong Kong. Uh, Why not? And, you know, let's not, as Stuart earlier said, to state the obvious. Hong Kong has been a financial center from the beginning, and it's been through several transitions. The transition now is from an international, and maybe I'll be challenged on this, from an international financial center to a Chinese financial center with an international component. So, you know, I, I, it, it's, it remains to be seen. This is a work in progress. I think the Jimmy Lai trial is important. I mean, this is not a young man. And if he's going to be put away for life, I think that will get even further, very negative press attention and, and effect. Mm. Uh, could I ask, Barry, if you happen to know how many of this uh, – special committee in Washington have ever visited Hong Kong or China? 
I do not know. And that's a good question. Let me see what I can find out in the uh, days yeah. ahead. Yeah, I think there's some have, but that, that's not the that isn't actually the point. Even those that have, you know, are some of the most vociferous critics of Hong Kong, such as certain mm. senators from Florida and Texas and so on. Mm. So I'm not sure if it matters. And of course, I'll take a word for that. The other, the other thing is the economy, um, and, and the article in the FT mentions that as well. I mean, Paul Chan has recently cut um, our growth forecast to just over 3%. That's down from 5.5% projected at the beginning of the year. And he's also asking us now to tighten our belts as well. Um, the budget deficit is over, going to be over $100 billion. He says it could be in the red next year as well, more than double what he predicted at the beginning of this year. He says spending has got to be cut and we've got to start living within our means, which is a little bit of a worrying signal, isn't it, that we're going to have a fiscal tightening on top of all the macro tightening that we're seeing at the same time. Yeah, but I think um, the government had an overambitious uh, forecast for how Hong Kong's economy would come out after COVID and, and, and the rush back into Hong Kong from tourism and businesses and things like that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, tourists have come back, but and, and but businesses have been much slower, more reticent, and I think that has probably meant that we haven't seen um, as much money coming into the coffers of the government, who have overspent over the last few years, have enlarged the civil service by a substantial amount, and are themselves under great pressure and need to be under pressure to reduce their size and scale. Um, and, it's, uh, and, and what Paul Chan is saying is quite right. He needs to do something to cut back on, on, on some fairly excessive spending. And they've got, I mean, they have still got these sort of ridiculous um, building project plans to spend hundreds of billions of dollars to create an island in the middle of nowhere, to, which they think will then take a, provide all the accommodation that Hong Kong's, or all future accommodation Hong Kong will need. Um, it, they've got to get rid of these sorts of notions that uh, they can spend, spend, spend. Um, and, and, and I think this is the start of it. Yeah, I think that, that that's a good point. And, I, you know, I, I think you have to reconsider that. I st you know, Hong Kong still is very attractive in many ways. But, you know, it seems as if there are, there are we're fraying a little bit on the edges. And, and the financial secretary has said so. As Stewart said, some of these tightening is overdue, especially in some of those projects, I suspect as well. But at the same time, it's it's how it's done to one extent. And what's different, of course, is that for many years, the Hong Kong government always forecast the deficit and was under what they said it was going to be. Hmm. Now it's twice as much as they said it was going to be. So, you know, it's partly perception, too. And, you know, and yeah. that that affects confidence. You know, it just seems to me, Mark, that uh, Hong Kong's um, superb uh, geographic position, its superb infrastructure, these grandiose plans for the greater Bay Area and the division of labor among what a, how many tens of millions of people there, uh, this transport hub. Uh, it's very difficult and I think would be very wrong to dismiss Hong Kong's uh, future because it's obviously going to be very good. All of that remains, even though the actual operation of that economy is probably in a fundamental transition. 
I mean, Singapore is so far to the south of China and Korea and Japan are too far away on the other side without the Chinese language. So, I mean, it just seems to me that Hong Kong's future is exceedingly bright, but it's different. And that's one quick comment. Uh, Just one quick comment on what Barry said in terms of Singapore. Also, the attitude, if you read the Straits Times or on, 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 on social media, there's comparatively little about China and Singapore. So it's, you know, it is it is relatively remote. I might just want make one also comment on tourists. Yes, tourism is here. But in the FT article, you might have seen the graph. It's now almost completely mainland Chinese. Nothing wrong with that. But that changes the nature of, of, of tourism and it changes the nature of what businesses do well and don't do so well. As you can see, if you go to certain areas of, of Hong Kong, like Long Kwai Fong and, and Soho. Before we move off the subject of Hong Kong, let me just finally ask you about our, our stock exchange. Uh, Nicholas Agassan is going to leave his role as CEO of the HKEX after three years here. Probably, it's probably fair to say that he's had a pretty tough time of it over the three years, with uh, Hong Kong being overtaken now by the National Stock Exchange of India in terms of its market capitalization. He's seen six quarterly profit declines, um, a, a collapse in IPOs here in the city. But I suppose, Stuart, to be fair, um, that's not necessarily down to him, is it? Because I think anyone who was the CEO of Hong Kong Stock Exchange over the last three years would have faced a lot of difficulties. Absolutely right. I mean, it's, it is it isn't down to him. He's done some very good work. Um, he's maintained the, the relationship with China. And the fact that we're not getting so many IPOs is, I mean, it's just a, a symptom of the current status of the financial world. And, and, and um, yeah, three years is probably a very tough three years, having come out of J.P. Morgan as um, a, a private banker. But, um, you know, that, that's what happens. And um, contracts expire. He didn't want to renew. Someone else comes in, their turn, um, and see whether anything will do, different will come out of it. Okay. You know, what's interesting is they've gone internally to, to, to replace him, which, you know, mm. which, is, which, which might help as well. What he did do, as, as I think Stuart rightly said, <laughs> difficult environment but what he did do was communicate regularly he was he, he's just a natural communicator and that partly he was a very senior executive at jp morgan and was used to that and just has a knack about it and you know that helps to some extent you might not agree with everything he says but at least he was in front of the the public not just financial people quite regularly and what? that's important too especially these days are, are, yes, you comfortable, are you comfortable with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange strategy, which seems to be at the moment to turn to the Middle East to look for new listings, possibly Southeast Asia, and become a sort of listing hub for overseas companies? Do you see that working? Well, but bear in mind that that's sort of direction from President Xi Jinping from China, uh, that China is also looking to the Middle East and trying to build its relationship with Saudi Arabia and and other places within the Middle East. So um, it's it's, it's doing that. But bear in mind that the Hong Kong Stock Exchange now has offices in New York, London, Frankfurt, and a few other places. So it's not exclusively looking at the Middle East. It is looking at all many other parts of the world. And, 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 And quite rightly, it's looking where it can find opportunities. So I don't disagree. 
Mark, are your businesses, are they looking towards the Middle East? Is it the Hong Kong Stock Exchange reflecting what businesses are doing? So, so some of our some of our Zoom meetings now, people are based in Dubai or elsewhere. If they're not based there, they're spending time. So that never happened before. So to some extent, and also some of the regional executives now have responsibility for the Middle East and and sometimes Africa as well. Some did before, but there seemed to be more of that. So so definitely. And for some businesses, it's become a, a real center of, of what they do. There's some risk in that, of course, and vulnerability. But at the same time, uh, it is it is becoming uh, more interesting. For Hong Kong, I think we still have to we have a challenge of getting beyond beyond China and you know nearby Asia. Starting to do that, the government's been encouraging that. The Beijing's been encouraging that. But even the rest of Asia has been a stretch for Hong Kong businesses, ASEAN, and so on. I think we're going to have more of that, and there'll be more emphasis on that and the Middle East, and see where it goes. Okay. Well, let's turn our attention to another topic. Barry, let's start with the the, the Fed. Um, the Fed left interest rates on hold last week at a 22-year high between five and a quarter to five and a half percent. But the real headline, and maybe the real surprise, Jerome Powell's Christmas present to markets uh, is they're now project- projecting three interest rate cuts in 2024. Um, Barry, I have to confess, I, I'm still deeply confused by how this has suddenly come about, where we've gone in the space of just a couple of weeks from Jerome Powell stamping out any talk of rate cuts next year, saying it was premature, saying it was far too early, um, that uh, inflation still had a way to go, to suddenly saying we're, we're looking at three cuts now in, in 2024. What, what's changed? Well, I don't think that much has changed, Peter. I think it really is the dot plot. And, uh, you know, these come out every three months from members of the FOMC. And you've got uh, several of them saying that they see a weakening economy leading to up to three rate cuts in in 2024. That's not Jay Powell saying that. Uh, Jay Powell did say that there was a possibility of a normalization. He says that monetary policy is now tight. So I, I think that the markets and the analysts have overdone the statements that came out last Wednesday from Jay Powell. I I think uh, Stuart and I have agreed that uh, there's unlikely to be any rate cut, uh, certainly in March, by March. And uh, I I would say that, uh, you know, who knows if there's going to be three rate cuts in 2024. I would say maybe one is, is certain because you do experience a slowing economy. I don't think there's much confusion except for this dot plot, which doesn't come out in most Fed meetings. But there it was. And you had several of the members saying, we we think there will be uh, three rate cuts in 24. But Jay Powell did not say that. Mm. And I, the Fed seems to be worried a little bit that they've lost the narrative here, haven't they? Because they've been weaning out people like John Williams and Austin Goolsby of the Chicago Fed to really say, look, that's not what we were saying. And, you know, we're not going to be normalizing as quickly as that. Well, John Williams did say that. And I think that, uh, no, I don't think they've lost the narrative. I think they're surprised that the markets picked up on it. Although, with all the experts inside the Fed, they should have known that. But um, I, I think the Fed is nonetheless feeling very, very good about the way the economy is evolving. This is a Goldilocks economy. You've got uh, very still rapid economic growth. You've got low unemployment. You've got inflation coming down despite higher interest rates. So what more can you ask for? 
But there's something wrong, isn't there? Because the markets, when, when the Fed was saying no rate cuts, higher for longer, the markets were predicting three to four um, rate cuts next year. Now that the dot plots are saying three rate cuts are coming, the markets are now predicting six rate cuts for 2024. I find it hard to imagine what could prompt the Fed to, to lower rates six times next year, other than it couldn't possibly be anything good. Well, I think but, it was either you, Peter, or Stuart, who said, you know, well, look, at these are um, these are stockbrokers. Uh, these are money managers. They would like to see the markets <laughs> go higher. So therefore, if you can talk about lower interest rates, as Warren Buffett likes to say, uh, lower interest rates are oxygen are like oxygen for the body. I mean, you, you, you go higher. So I just don't take it that seriously. Yeah, and, and money. For the most part, these are these are analysts who've got no prior experience to the circumstances. Yeah, ab- absolutely, and it's interesting that Eddie Yu has also become a become a prognosticator on on uh, <laughs> on interest rates as well. <laughs> They're all sort of reinforcing that they won't be until after mid year, yeah. which you know, yeah. which sounds to me like he's probably right. But this has lit a fire under markets, hasn't it? I mean, look at what's happened to the uh, the bond markets and to the uh, and to the stock market. We've got the Dow and the Nasdaq 100 at all time highs. We've got the S and P 500 just one percent away from all time highs. Uh, you don't wouldn't want to bet against it um, getting there. We've seen a two trillion dollar rise in the value of U.S. bonds and stocks in just three days um, and over $7 well, trillion. Well, that's true, Peter. But at the same time, this rally didn't begin with uh, the Federal Reserve press conference last Wednesday. It really began in November. And in fact, the market had been high in July. So, uh, yeah, the amazing thing is that the housing sector remains high despite higher a doubling of, of mortgage interest rates over the past year and a half. So, yeah, I think the market is doing well, and I, th- I still think the Federal Reserve has achieved the soft landing. I think they're feeling good about things, but uh, I don't see that. Yes, it may have lit a fire, but I wouldn't say it was a roaring fire, Peter. I think it was already in the works. How, how do you um, think- let, me just, let me just come in there, because it is coming to the end of the year. Today, it's 19th of December. Uh, many of the money managers will want to be positioning their portfolios to look as though that they've held all the top stocks for, for the <laughs> whole of the year because many of them will have underperformed the indices. And and, and, and so we're beginning to start, start to see shop window dressing by portfolios, and that means buying up some of the most expensive stocks so that they look as though they've they've got them in the portfolio when it comes to having their reports produced for the for the uh, end of the current calendar year so uh, none of this is a great surprise it's just uh, the way that the market works more or less every single year Mm. And, and a lot of money managers have got the macro picture completely wrong this year haven't they because so many of them were predicting a recession at the beginning of the year and and what do you think, Barry, um, that the Fed thinks about this plunge in uh, bond yields? Because um, only a few weeks ago, um, uh, Jerome Powell was pretty pleased about bond yields rising because it was doing some of the tightening for him and in effect was the equivalent of you know another rate rise. Now we've seen that unwound very dramatically. I mean, the, the, the 10-year yield, which was above uh, 5% only a month or so ago, is now back below 4%. This is sort of unwinding yeah. the tightening, isn't it? 
I, yes, it is. And that's the conundrum I don't understand. I don't understand why the uh, tenure has gone so low. Uh, you know, you can see the headlines in all of the online sites about to rush now into the housing market because uh, mortgage rates have come down slightly from from the high levels that they have reached. Um, we'll see. Uh, no, I'm going to defer to Mark and to Stuart on uh, why this uh, tenure has gone below 4%. From my point of view, I think it's just the sheer volume of money that's looking for a safe haven. Um, it's keep, it, it, there's a lot of cash still in the system, and um, th then they can get if they can get better yields from the government, then they're, they're going to put it in there. That's that's what's happened. I think in for the short term, I think we might see a very different position in January, but uh, we're not there yet. Marco, this is great for businesses, isn't it? I mean, they must be delighted to see bond yields coming down so fast. Yeah, I, they are. I, you know, I, I really, I think Stuart and, and Barry sort of gave a good good view of, of what, what has happened and what the rationale is. But yeah, so far, but everybody's very cautious and everybody's worried. Many of our members are worried about 2024 as much as the geopolitical and domestic political issues as, as as everything else there's so much going on and so the, you know they're they're navigating but at the same time for many of them it's not been a bad year it's been a pretty good year mm. but Barry, despite with, everything with everyone focusing on these uh, three rate cuts next year i presume it's not impossible either that rates could go up more next year is it well gosh i i don't see that uh no i think the the, the rate rising cycle is over uh, you would have to see uh, inflation on the uh, rise. You would have to see the economy getting too hot. Um, I don't think that's likely. Mm. Well, I, yeah, I'm, you're right on that, Barry, but I don't think it's unlikely that, I don't think it's as unlikely as people um, say that inflation in the US could go up. Um, it's, it, it was talking about interest rates that are higher than the level of inflation. We are talking about um, oil prices that uh, could possibly help to push up inflation uh, as, as, as tightening of the oil market is beginning to occur. You know, there's just been a report overnight about uh, a reduction in the amount of movement of oil because of the Red Sea, where there are drones attacking ships. So, you know, the, the oil needs to be got to places. And if it doesn't get to places, prices go up. Well, that's true, Stuart. But let's not forget that the oil price has been below $80, remains below $80, and that most of that oil coming out of the Persian Gulf is not headed into the Red Sea, but rather going around the tip of Africa or going straight to East Asia. So, I mean, yep. look, I think the, I think the price will tell us what's happening with the oil market. I don't see it. And gasoline prices are way down here in the States. Down in Florida, they're below $3 a gallon. I mean, there's been a tremendous uh, diminution of the oil price nationally over the past 12 months, which has helped the inflation rate to come down. It yeah. is, it's very noticeable, Barry, hearing you talk about the, the US economy, just how positive things are and must be looking and feeling over over there compared to say here in the uk for example um, where it really is very gloomy at the moment about the outlook for the the economy and for uh, and for interest rates and, and for inflation there's not much good cheer around at all so you seem to be in a bit of a, a unique place <laughs> over there well i hope i am a good um 
interpreter or observer and that I don't have it wrong. But as we all know, it's so easy to get it wrong. Let me finally ask you before we go um, about the Chinese economy. We had a lot of data out uh, on Friday, um, the activity data. Industrial production came in ahead of analyst expectations, expanding at the fastest pace since February. Retail sales, though, were lower than economists' forecasts, and the rate of increase in retail sales is slowing when measured in nominal terms, a sign that the world's second largest economy is going through a rather patchy recovery. And anything related to real estate looked pretty gloomy. Me. Uh, Mark, how are your members feeling? Well, no, feeling, you know, uh, obviously still cautious, reasonably good. Our forecast for next year is for China is 4.9% at this point, which is higher than than most. But, you know, we 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 think that, you know, there's going to be more phys- fiscal stimulus, interest rate cuts of some sort or another, and uh, and policies that are going to try to stimulate uh, stimulate spending and and deal with um, with the real estate problems they may not be perfect but they certainly they certainly see the problems they have a lot of levers to push there's a lot that could go wrong as we all know uh, geopolitically and and in other other ways but at the same time not as bad as uh, as as have been feared at least at this point might say something different in a month but you know reasonably <laughs> cautiously, <laughs> Cautiously uh, optimistic, I guess you'd say. We still, That's a good start. Then. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. still have deflation, yeah. don't we, in China? That's that must be a yeah. concern going into next year. Yeah, that's deflation is obviously is obviously key key one of the key areas that they have to deal with. I mean, it's a it's a complicated economy. It's as we all know, it's a big economy, but at the same time. Um, they, they, the focus is, is strong. It's consumer confidence. I mean, it's confidence that's important. I keep talking about this, but that economic long COVID that still seems to have an impact. Not That's not the only thing on what people are going to spend and what they're going to do going forward. Have to deal with that as well as the other other things that are going on these days. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah, think, think you're, you're right? Do you think the Chinese government is, is it has more of a sense of urgency about making economic growth uh, the priority for next year? Because the feeling has been it's sort of growth has been on the back burner for for most of this year. Has that changed? Do you think? Um, I think it has changed, but I don't think the Chinese government would want it to be seen to be changing. I don't think the Chinese government likes the idea of being seen to be panicking. Um, it, it, it always wants to be seen to be controlling and, and and they don't want you to believe that they don't have full control on their economy. Um, mm. and, but the reality is that the, the, the economy is not necessarily in full control. Barry, what's the risk of deflation being exported over to the US and other parts of the world from um, from China? Because we do have overcapacity um, here. There's really a competitive environment in some key industries like electric vehicles, where there's a lot of price cutting going on. Uh, manufacturers are slashing prices to the bone almost. Um, could that deflation spread around the world? Yes, I think it could. It has in the past. Um, I, I think that the Americans, the business community, and the Treasury would probably welcome a dose of deflation coming from China because that would drive down our own inflation rate closer to the 2% that Jay Powell doesn't think can be reached until the end of, I think, 25, he said. 
so Mexico is a big factor here because if BYD and other Chinese eek vehicle manufacturers set up in Mexico and come into the States, they're going to run into uh, a lot of resistance. But there is worry about that because the Americans know full well they can't compete on price with Chinese EV um, sales in the States. So I don't think they'll be allowed. But no, I don't think uh, that's a danger that would be um, regarded as such here in Washington or anywhere in the States. If you go into the supermarkets and you go into the department stores, uh, any any reduction in the price rises that we've seen over the last two years would be welcome. Okay. Well, look, thank you all very much for your thoughts this morning and for this year as well. This will be the final uh, Tuesday before the uh, before the end of the year. Wish you all a very happy Christmas. You heard there Barry Wood, our US economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow with more business and finance headlines. To discuss them, I'll be joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Le Shah, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. And if you want some more information on some of the top stories from the region, please take a look at my daily newsletter on peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 